we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Good afternoon, Courtney. Hi, Craig. How are you going? Very well. Yep. I'm Excellent. glad to be indoors. It's, just, it's a bit wild and woolly out there today. Oh, yeah. I tried to get a coffee and then it started like pouring down with rain. So I've spent the rest of my day at work just like soaked. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Um, yeah. Yes. So we're very lucky today to, to have um, Dr. Peter Bentley uh, from the Australian Red Cross Lifeblood organization on the podcast and he's also the department of health human research ethics committee chair as well um yeah which, really yeah. really interesting guy um so i, I only I just found out with our pre-conversation on how you found him craig so how, how did you how did you find peter for this uh this podcast yeah so having a background in law and being interested in things such as ethics, I thought it'd be really great. And also have been someone who has had to write ethics applications and get approval from ethics committees for projects that I'm working on. Uh, I thought it'd be really interesting to find out a little bit more about what goes on behind the scenes with um, HREX. And I thought, who better to speak to than the chair and the chair of the Department of Health, HREC. Um, so, yeah, a bit of trawling through the Department of Health website um, led me to Peter. And uh, he was very generous in both responding and then agreeing to give up some of his time to have a chat with us. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the short story. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, chose a good person because uh, what the, what the listeners are about to listen to is a, a very fascinating conversation. Yeah, yeah, agreed. He's, he he wears a lot of different hats and he's done a lot of different things in in healthcare and medicine. Uh, and is is extremely well qualified to assess whether research projects are ethically viable or not, Absolutely. based on his experience, um, al- along with the the committee that he chairs. You know, which has, as you'll hear, has a range of different voices from different sectors of the community. So um, have a listen uh, and enjoy. <laughs> Yeah. So if you if you're ready, we'll we'll get into it. If yeah, one's sure. ready. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gives, gives me a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Peter Bentley to the podcast today. Uh, thanks for joining us, Peter. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. Um, yeah, so what we usually do to kick things off is we normally get you to give us a, just a little bit of background about yourself, sort of education uh, areas that you've worked in in the past and, and, and then what you're doing now. Yep, sure. Well, um, I, I arrived in Australia in 1969 with my parents as a sort of migrant back in those days when people were migrating to Australia and we... Uh, lived in Kalgoorlie and I went to high school up there and then came down to Perth to do medicine at UWA um, and from there um, went through the usual junior doctor um, rotations at Charles Gardner Hospital and Princess Margaret and went on to become a, a GP and we had uh, a practice in the northern suburbs in Woodvale for, for several years, 15 years or so um, and sort of 
in the late 90s, early 2000s, I started to work additionally with the health department as the um, inaugural medical director for Health Direct, which was a, a novel service set up for telephone triage and health information at the time. And that uh, that was sort of my entree into doing other other things outside general practice, I guess. And uh, so, and from there, I, I moved into sort of hospital management, and then more more recently into um, working for Lifeblood as uh, in management and in policy development. Mm. Okay, yeah, interesting, an interesting background. Where, whereabouts did your family immigrate from? Uh, we came from Kent, Kent in England, and I went straight from Kent in England to Kalgoorlie, which was um, a different. Bit of a, Bit of a change for my parents, but uh, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad they did move to Australia because it's presented uh, us with a lot of opportunities. I don't think we would have did, potentially. Did you like being in Kalgoorlie? Oh yeah, I did at the time, but now I go back there and I can't imagine how you how I how I enjoyed it so much. But you know, when you're when you're a kid, it's different. I have taken my children up there, and they've been very surprised that anybody <laughs> could live there, mm. such a long way from the coast, and you know, it's it's not not a city sort of thing. But uh, but no, it was it was mm. it was great. I made lots of good lifelong friends and things from there. Yeah, Did, and not, have you had reason to work out there at all? Um, well, in fact, when I was a medical student, I used to work on the mines in the Christmas holidays to make enough money to keep being a medical student. So I have worked up there, but not in not in medicine. Um, and one of my daughters has worked up in um, Leonora teaching as well. So I've been up you know, to see her from time to time when she was up there. But uh, I ha- haven't actually worked as a as a doctor in in the in the goldfields. Yeah, okay. But you have been a, <laughs> a GP for yes. a, a number of years. What was that like? As like a general experience over fifteen years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great. I was, I mean, we, I had a practice. Of, it was one of my friends from medical school, uh, Dr. Jane Deacon. We set the practice up in Woodvale, so it was a new practice. We had, um, you know, a, a great bunch of patients and other doctors and staff. So it was, it was a lovely, uh, a lovely place to work. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, Sort of later in the piece, I started working for the health department as well in the medical director role for Health Direct. And um, one thing I I noticed was that the bureaucracy in general practice was sort of beginning to outstrip the bureaucracy in the health department. So it was becoming more tedious from that perspective. And, uh, and then the other thing that happened about that state that time was um, general practices were being. Um, acquired by big corporations and that included ours so it gave us an opportunity to to go and do something else so we didn't only practice anymore we could um, explore other areas in in medicine mm. but that does seem but to overall, be the... i mean being a gp is a great job you you you, you get to talk to lots of nice people who, who become quite quite close in terms of you know you see many generations of one family i mean and i think overall if i look back on my career that was probably you know what, what I was actually best at doing, being a GP. But um, but since then, I've I tried to do other, other uh, things. Just hmm. in my own experience, like I have had one GP since I was a baby, um, and he looked after yeah. my mum mm. uh, and well. our whole family. And yeah, and I think it's, mm. it's it's so beneficial to have those connections. So I can I can see how there would be a good um, a 
mental benefit to the GPs as well to have those patients keep coming back and and having those connections. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it works well from both both sides. But I think if you are a patient who has a has a good GP that you've known well for a long time, it's 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 very good. Not only. Not only from the point of view, you don't mind going and seeing them and you, you'll you'll talk to them about things you might not talk to other people about, but I think from a health outcomes perspective, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a very Definitely. useful thing to have. Um, what were you going to say, Craig? Yeah, especially, yeah, so I was going to say a couple of things. So it seems to be that's more and more common that we um, GP practices are sort of becoming these quite big practices now to... Uh, I guess, meet the demands, the challenges of the existing health system and how it's funded and whatnot. Um, and then the other thing I was going to say as well is obviously we don't have the, we have a sort of hybrid system where some people have electronic medical records and some don't. And I guess that's the value in seeing the same GP is that they've got all your history up there um, and they can yep. sort, of, sort of see over time if anything's changed. And because obviously that's a flag for possibly something needs treating you know if there are certain indicators um but yeah it's uh, yeah I, I i have moved around a bit over the years um just i've lived overseas and then come back and you know i lived in sydney for a while um but yeah it's, this is sort of the first time in my adult life that i've probably been to the same practice for for multiple years um and yeah it does make a difference when you can say to your gp um you'll see my blood test there from a year ago or a couple of years ago you know you, you can tell me if you think there's an issue or if yeah, I need to get more, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and there's a lot of intangible benefits as well in that your GP probably knows your background without having to go through it each single time and, and knows, you know, how, how to couch things for you or, you know, what sort of ways you would prefer to be communicated with and, you know, what, what might make you respond more favourably to sort of suggestions for maybe lifestyle change or other, other things that a, a GP might want to do so um, i think it, it works yeah. very well so, as you yeah. say i think the 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 economics really means that large practices you know that that is the only way you can really m- manage these days and that was one of the reasons we sold our practice back in the um, early 2000s because general practice needed a lot of capital to be um to be able to function, you know, with computer systems and, and so on, which you, you can't really do as a small business properly. You need a lot more infrastructure and support. So yeah. I think, you know, in a way that's, that's helped uh, help recapitalise general practice so that, um, you know, individual doctors can function better in a, in a more supported environment. Mm. And, and so you mentioned from there you went on to sort of hospital management. Is that right? Well, no, I, I actually the... The, the I applied for this job, which was medical director of Health Direct, which at, which started in the late nineties and was is now a national telephone triage and health information system. And we had uh, the pilot or the initial phase of that was set up in WA, and um, so I was the initial medical director from a general practice practice perspective. And there was an emergency physician, Dr. Val Turner, who was looking at it from the emergency side, and we worked together within the health department um, on on telephone triage and, and health information systems. So that, that was an interesting eye-opening sort of uh, role really because it showed me um, how things can, can be managed on a population basis and, and 
instead of just dealing with one individual in front of you, you dealt with uh, massive numbers of people. You know, 10% of the state by the end of my time were contacting Health Direct every every year. So it was at a, at a very, very long reach and um, you know, simple minor wording changes to questions that our, our nursing staff would ask could make a big difference to the outcomes in terms of whether people would need to go to emergency departments or whether they would need you know, medication from their doctor or, or whatever. It was it was a, an interesting role and, and at the time quite controversial as well because it was a new thing in, in Australia and uh, people were concerned that it might increase emergency department um, use, for example, and uh, GPs were concerned as well in some ways that it may have an impact on their work. So there, there was, you know, the usual concern about something new so it was a challenge to sort of communicate the benefits of the service and and um, and it turned out to be very and successful so is the service is. like a, a phone so, call so you can call health direct and they'll tell you where to go yeah 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 that's right yeah it, i think now there's probably more telehealth and things involved because remember back then there, there was no such thing as zoom i mean or phones were basically like new <laughs> And tele, telehealth wasn't heard of. It was it was a it was a new sort of thing. So what it involved basically, the main service at the time and probably still is was a triage service where people could call with symptoms and their their symptoms would be triaged by a nurse using computer based algorithms to determine whether they needed to be immediately mm-hmm. sent to hospital or whether their condition was such that they could see their doctor the next day. And, or, and or did it on. increase? Emergency department visits? Do you know? Uh, well, not. So all of no, the concerns really, were no. no. I, I mean, yeah. I remember, this was a while ago now, and I can't remember the numbers. But I, I mean, many of the callers, for example, could have who would have ended up going to emergency were able to be told, well, you know, you don't really need to go to the emergency department. You could potentially see your doctor the next day, or, or you know, there's some home care advice Put that a band-aid would, on. you know help you out. Until you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that no. kind of things. So. Mm. So, uh, you know, and all these calls previously were going to hospital switchboards as well, so it decreased right. the hospital switchboards um, workload substantially uh, at the time. So, it was, so it was, it was, yeah, it was a very interesting service. And I, it's Australia-wide now, and it's still, it's still called Health Direct, but they run a lot of other telephone services under the same umbrella. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. And, and so was this something that was an initiative of the government or was this a private company or how, how did it start? Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's a good question. It was, it was an initiative of WA Health, but it was uh, the actual operational um, arm was run by a private company that was, um, at the time, it um, was called High Performance Healthcare, which ended up being bought by McKesson Health, which are a big, uh, big healthcare organisation. And the UK mm. and other places have had had those services for quite a while before we started. And NHS Direct was the sort of model that we were sort of basically following. Mm-hmm. Their, their success you know, at, at I mean, firstly, it provided people with access to medical advice over the phone or health advice over the phone from anywhere in the state. And as you know, we've got a very dis, you know dispersed population, very remote, remote people, and anyone could call. Um, you know, there was interpreter services and, and so on. So it gave people access and, um, and it, yeah, it worked, worked very well, I think. Mm. Yeah. So from there, so how long were you there for and then what, what happened? At, um, how did you I transition? I was there for about 10 or, so, or maybe 8 or 10 years and then, then it became... Yeah. 
a national service and was you know, centralised to national management. I, I wasn't there full time. I did three sessions, you know, three days, three half days a week, and, and following there, I, yeah, I ended up um, finding um, sort of public health and population health quite interesting and management interesting. So I did an MBA at UWA and and wound up being in hospital management at Fremantle and then at Charles Gardner Hospital. Mm. Any particular departments or just overall? Uh, well, I was sort of in medical, director of medical services in those in those um, hospitals. And I started off being a deputy director and then director of medical services, which is mm-hmm. it's the sort of role that taught me that that is a very hard <laughs> job in, in hospital medicine, tertiary uh, medicine, and hospital medicine in in, uh, in Australia. Yeah, many things that you'd have to juggle in that job seems very high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty thankless. <laughs> What's what sort of responsibilities do you have as a medical uh, director of medical services? Well, you have almost a, t- a lot of responsibility and not much actual power to to change anything, which makes it a difficult job. I mean, you really you're you're responsible for all the the, the doctors within the uh, the hospital. Um, so it's a clinical governance role, and there's operational matters as as well. Um, and it depends on the hospital and how things are set up, but often the, the medical director will be um, managing, say, for example, allied health as well, medical records or some other areas within the, within the, in the hospital and work closely with the, the chief nurse, you know, the director of nursing, and, and report to the, the executive director of the hospital. Mm. A, few, a few sleepless uh, nights, I'm yeah, sure. It's, um, <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, you know, there's, there's this mo- it's a role you, you really need about five people to do the one job. It's very, <laughs> and and no one's happy really. It's it's a tricky role because you know you can't really necessarily provide all the services that people should be able to obtain. It's it's just impossible because of you know, demand and access yeah. and other things. Mm. And so, how, how long did you last in that role? Both roles. <laughs> well, longer, longer than I should have done. Well, actually, I was maybe in total for two or three years within the, in the um, hospital management system uh, and about 18 months at Charles Gardner towards the end, uh, which, which was, mm. uh, look, I, I learned a huge amount of um, management, I think, from working in those environments and uh, it, was, it was very useful, but you'd be hard pushed to say you enjoy that role. Fair enough. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then um, you know I, I moved to Lifeblood, and I've been here for fourteen or so years, and it's um, again it's a different facet of um, of health. You know, we're not even classified as a health organisation; we're a therapeutic goods manufacturer, so it's different from health. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it's very interesting. There's lots of little um, nooks and crannies within the organisation, and and um, you know we we have a research division and. Obviously, we provide blood and blood products for, for the Australian community, and um, we do have some other aspects to our our organisation. You know, um, for example, um, tissue typing. And we've got the Fecal Microbiome Bank here in Perth, which has um, been in the news a bit, and, and we have a milk bank as well. So there's there's a multitude of interesting aspects mm. to, to life. Thank you.
So I should say, I should um, say that to listeners, it's part of the Australian Red Cross, isn't it? Lifeblood. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we're uh, the, we're the Australian Red Cross Life Lifeblood, but we have a separate board and, and structure to the Australian Red Cross. But uh, they okay. are our umbrella. And so, do you guys like organise those different? Uh, what's what's the word? Um, bodily fluids. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what a terrible question. <laughs> what do you guys do with them? And like, how, how does the whole process work in Lifeblood? Well, let's start, yeah. should we start starting sure. with blood uh, and plasma, blood and plasma and platelets? I guess they're, they're the, obviously the core um, <laughs> business that we run. And so we have collection centres around the country, about 100 of them, where people donate and you can donate whole blood, which is um, what people think of when they donate blood, or you can donate plasma, which means that the, the collection involves taking off blood and returning red cells back to the donor and keeping the plasma. Um, or you can donate platelets, which is similar to plasma, except we keep the platelets and return all the other um, components back to the donor. And then um, what collected is is sent to the processing centres, which are in the main capital cities, um, and there we manufacture products or send the plasma off to the, the, the to the fractionator, which is CSL in, in Melbourne, who fractionate all the plasma that we collect um, and convert it into products such as IVIG and hyperimmune globulins and, and other the products which which are then distributed right. to so, the hospitals. Okay, so that, mm. that all makes sense. Mm. And I guess one question, which is, I guess, not necessarily health-related, but um, how is it funded? Yeah, yeah. it's funded okay. by the governments, each, each of the state governments mm, in the Commonwealth okay. Fund. Because I was just saying, like, you know, blood. people donate um, bloods, then, like, <laughs> you can't really sell it to the hospitals. So it makes sense that it's funded from the government perspective. No, yeah. no. No, we have an. There's an organisation that is run by the Commonwealth Government called the MBA, which is National Blood Authority, and they arrange. We have an arrangement with them called a deed, and they they pay us for a certain amount of blood and blood products, and we use that to fund our donor centres and processing centres and testing facilities and and, and so on. Hmm. I'm, I mean, I'm curious about the the milk bank and the the faecal. Biobank, fecal yep. sample biobank. What talk, talk talk us through those and how they're useful or what they do. Yeah, well, both of those have started more recently than the blood uh, side of things, and and really it was we're we're very well positioned as an organisation to be able to provide safe products such as milk and and, and fecal. Um, Microbiome, because because of our experience with managing blood and, and doing the appropriate testing and donor screening and, and so on, so so we were seen to be um, you know a good candidate to try and provide those products. And milk, for example, is is um, donated by nursing mothers and collected and frozen and then used in neonatal ICUs in premature uh, for premature babies, and it particularly prevents uh, a very nasty condition called necrotizing enterocolitis. So it, it's a very valuable, valuable product. And um, that's 
been a very successful enterprise as well, and now most of the state's uh, um, maternity and, and paediatric NICUs are, um, are using milk from our, our milk bank. Hmm. Um, and the microbiome, which is the what people colloquially know as the poo bank, um, is in Perth. It's at the uh, Wellington Street, you know, just up the road from where you are at the moment. And um, that the product is is used for people who have um, a debilitating condition, um, which seems to respond extremely well to to faecal transplant uh, when it hasn't responded to any other other conditions. And they, these people. Um, end up, uh, you know, without faecal microbiome, they end up um, in, in ICU and, and on multiple different treatments. Um, but the, um, the microbiome transplant seems to work very well. And, again, the, the, the process involves people coming to our facility and actually donating a, uh, a specimen <laughs> of their... <laughs> And, uh, mm-hmm. and they have to obviously undergo a whole range of, of questions and testing and things to make sure as much as possible that we, we provide a, uh, a product that, that contains only um, the useful bits, of, of which nobody really knows exactly what they are in the fecal microbiome, but we know that overall it, it works, it works um, very well. For this antibiotic-related um, um, gastroenteritis or diarrhea. So all three of these products are like based on donations. Yeah. Um, yes. I would say blood yeah. donations are probably the most popular. Um, how many do- donations yes. do you get yeah, exactly. for uh, poop? <laughs> yeah. Poop. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's 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 actually yeah. it's it's new, so we're not yeah, we're not okay. doing too many at the moment. And I think we've we've only probably uh, look. I can't tell you the exact numbers actually, but it's not it's in the hundreds, not in the thousands. Whereas um, blood and plasma, we do one point five million collections a year, roughly uh, Australia wide. That is so. So the the, the faecal microbiome is something that will grow because there's a lot of demand for this product around the country. Um, there are competitors who produce it as well, and there's you know there's been people who've made their own microbiome transplant because they're desperate for this product. So it's uh, it, you know it is life changing for these people with um, this particular bug called Clostridioides difficile, which causes um, this antibiotic related diarrhea. And um, mm. so far, it's it's been used. I can't tell you the exact number of times, but maybe fifty or so times at Fiona Stanley, which is with the pi- the pilot that we're doing, and most of the recipients have have done extremely well and been you know um, gone from being very disabled to being completely fine and uh, and you hear the stories mm. it, it's it's just dramatic so it's a, it's a great product with a, with a lot of um a lot of potential to grow around the, con- the country in terms of um, helping others mm. i'm i'm curious and a bit reticent to ask about people creating their own <laughs> biome <Yeah>. microbiome <laughs> I think we've all got some idea <laughs> What's about that, that process involved? <laughs> apparently, apparently on YouTube you can find out how to do it. But, okay. I don't think I'll be YouTubing that. <laughs> but, I mean, before we were able to do this um, and we had some talks from some of the registrars and consultants at Fiona Stanley when, when we were finally able to, to get this up and up and running because all of our products need to be approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is quite a major process to, to enable us to provide a product. 
and one of the registrars was saying that they used to go to people's houses sometimes to get a, a, a relative's um, poo so that they could treat these patients with clostridioides difficile. So, you know, mm. they used to, it wasn't, wasn't the best job that the registrar had for the day, no. but they, they would do any, anything to try and help these, um, these people. Okay. So this, this is a, a, an example of um, kind of anecdotal evidence translating into sort of uh, me- medical science, I guess. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, fascinating. Um, yes, that's probably, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing around our services, there will be a, a, you know, a lot of research eventually published about the use of this product and, and you know, confirming particularly for this indication, that it, it, it works very well and then potentially looking at other indications down the track. Yeah. Is there any research uh, in kind of going away from uh, like faecal donations to a like a, a chemical-based one or an artificial treatment? I think I'm Craig's frozen, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Frank's frozen. Yeah, it looks like. Um, yes, there. Uh, look, I wouldn't say this is my area of expertise by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I mean, people are looking for what component within the fecal microbiome is mm. the, the thing that's helping, and uh, nobody really knows that for sure. So, you know, there's research into what element of the faecal microbiome, because it contains, you know, thousands of different types of bacteria and viruses and, and so on. So, you know, what, which, which of those things is, is doing the, the good? Um, okay, so, so going beyond kind of those, the specifics, um, what is your role in Lifeblood? Well, I... I I've got a few different things, and uh, one one that I find interesting is is working with our therapeutic donors, who are the donors with hemochromatosis, who donate um, for their own health reasons. And I don't know if you or Craig know about this condition, but it's a condition where people get iron overload because they can't um, they can't, or their, their absorption and excretion of iron doesn't work the way that it should, so they, they become iron overloaded. And the iron is actually toxic if you have too much of it. It can cause damage to, to various tissues. So the treatment for this condition is um, venesection, which is you know, bloodletting, which that, is That's what so we interesting because that's such do. like, it's an old, and, like a really old school, you know, you get your leeches out and, yes, and things yes. like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah right. well, that would have worked for this condition, hemochromatosis, which which is is quite common. It's um, in 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 Anglo-Saxon uh, populations, it's one in one hundred and eighty or so people have it, so it's it's not uncommon. And so we can not only help them by removing their iron by venesecting, but we can also potentially, in most cases, use their blood for um, you know, clinical purposes. So it's, uh, it's a win win. <laughs> Situation, yeah, exactly. And um, doc, the, the the donors in this case, doctor refers them to us for that um, that program, and you know they they come in initially quite frequently, sometimes even once a week for blood donation if they're highly iron overloaded, and then gradually, um, gradually the the frequency decreases as as the iron levels come down. But most of them will need lifelong um, venesection to to remain. 
well with that condition. So that's mm. that's one of the roles, and and with with that role, we created an electronic referral app, which which has been quite successful for that as well to help smooth the process for the GPs who refer their their patients. Okay, so that's so so is that just like a in a very basic form, GPs would just be able to like send you the referral, and then it's just an easy electronic process. Yeah, exactly. They send us an electronic referral, and then we arrange for the their patient to come and, and have have their blood taken uh, with us. And, uh, and if they meet our other um, product safety criteria, then we can use their mm-hmm. their blood and blood products. Okay, so so did you help set up that so that, that project? Yeah, nice. Yes, yeah, that, we set that up back in 2013 because um, prior and prior to that, it was a paper-based system, and people, and there, again, there's there's criteria for acceptance with hemochromatosis, and, and prior to that, it was not as evidence-based as we would have liked. So now it's it's totally evidence-based that you know if you if you're on our program, you you meet the criteria to have venesection for hemochromatosis. There's a couple of other strange conditions that require venesection, which we will take as well. One's polycythemia vera and there's another one called porphyria. Cutanea <laughs> very tarda, fancy names. <laughs> benefit from venesection. Yeah, they benefit from venesection, but we can't use their, their blood for anything else, so we take their blood and discard it. Mm. Yeah, sorry, uh, my connection there just yeah. dropped out, but hopefully it's fairly seamless because um, it just keeps recording um, you guys whilst, <laughs> whilst I'm trying to get back in. So I missed a little bit of that, but uh, that sounded quite interesting, um, that service that you guys offer there. Um, it's one, yeah, one thing, and then there's a couple of other things. You know, I work in the policy unit, so some of the policies that come out I've helped mm-hmm. with from a clinical perspective. Um, yep. Work with the researchers in some of the research we do here. I've got an adjunct position with the UWA actually, and we have um, a medical student project um, collaborative with UWA, and we've done some interesting projects with people from UWA over the years. We're up to about our sixth or seventh now, and, and generally that involves a, a sort of an eighteen-month project from a postgraduate um, or the MD, the MD students. Are you are you working with um? I I can only remember him as um Kevin Tarantino. I know that's not his last name. Um, starts with T, because I know that he's yeah. Kevin he's Taranto, in blood management yeah. as well. I think. Yeah. He's he at Royal Perth, Perth though. Yeah. He's based yeah. at Royal Perth. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yes, because most hospitals have their own. Um, so blood transfusion committees and management committees to look after blood at their end and, and you know, manage, for example, appropriate transfusion practice and, um, you know, if there's transfusion reactions or other, other you know, tricky, tricky issues around, you know, difficult, um, difficult antibodies that they need to, to match for blood transfusion, those sort of things, so that he might be in something like that if he's hospital-based. Mm. So speaking of policy, uh, the, one of the big policies that's changed recently is uh, with the rules for 
donors who used to live in the UK who possibly could be carriers of the variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease or VCJD or mad cow disease, as a lot of people would know it. Um, So I believe that's been quite a big shift and there's been lots of debate and conversation come about because of that, but it sounds like you're right at the forefront of that. Uh, no, look, I, I couldn't claim credit for being at the forefront of it. No, but there's been, you know, a multitude of people here who've put in hours and hours of work trying to uh, provide enough evidence to the TGA that this um, would be safe to take blood and use products from people who lived in the UK between 1980 and 1996. And, um, I mean, it's, it's a great step forward that we've, we've been able to, to get that um that approval from the TGA and, and from, I think, the 25th of July, we've been able to take people who, who are in that cohort of, uh, of donors. And, in fact, there's a huge number of them in Australia and also in Perth particularly in the northern suburbs. And we're seeing a lot of those people who've been very keen to donate and, and been unable to are now coming coming into our, our centre. Mm. So it is, it is a, a great step forward. And, uh- Oh, yeah, I'm one of those people. I was born in, in Kent, funnily enough, that you oh, mentioned right. Kent, um, in 1980 mm. and immigrated to Australia sort of 18 months later. Mm. Uh, so I was just a baby, but mm. because of I uh, had lived in the UK during that time, uh, I was banned from mm. donating blood up until this policy change. Um, <laughs> so we'll what, see what, you soon what, then, Craig. <laughs> what's that, sorry? We'll see you soon. You will, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit squeamish, but I think I can get past that. Yeah, yeah, so what were the reasons for that policy being in place for as long as it was and what changed to allow that rule to change? Well, I think the background for all of our policies is that they're very precautionary. I mean, we we have a very, very conservative posture because transfusing somebody with a disease that could cause immense harm is something we, we really try and avoid at all costs. And, you know, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, variant Kreutzfeldt-Jakob is a significant um, disease. And because it had such a long incubation period, which means that people who caught Kreutzfeldt-Jakob may not display any symptoms for 30 years or so, and and there was no test to prove whether or not they had it, the, the only precaution is really to not, um, take blood from from that group of people, um, but you know more and more evidence comes out, uh, and more and more research is done, and, and and you know sometimes it swings towards well we need to keep this in place, and that's happened a couple of times when we think we've got it across the line and, and been able to to utilise people from that cohort, and then uh, then it, it swings back the other way. But eventually, you know, the weight of evidence is that it's it's a very safe thing to do. The residual risk is is so low that we can we can accept it. Um, and other countries have done the same thing. Ireland did it slightly before us, but it, mm-hmm. it's it's a long process to to get enough evidence to show that you can remove a blood safety measure. You know, it's easy to bring mm. things in because that's a precautionary move and you can't harm anybody by doing that except, you know, they're going to be unhappy, they can't donate and it, it may be costly from a donor retention sort of point of view, but removing something is is very difficult for, in blood safety and, and particularly where the consequences of getting it wrong are so high, you know, you, you probably, you know, they're, they're, 
early days of HIV and hepatitis C um, when blood services were struggling with, you know, how to, how to manage those things that, you know, transmissions occurred and it was a, it was a tragedy if something like that happened. So I, I, guess, I guess we were um, very, very precautionary and then eventually when we had enough evidence, we have to go to the TGA and they're also very precautionary as well. To, you know, so the checks and balances are in place that ensure that our, our blood supply in Australia is extraordinarily safe. Mm. And, and was the amount of time that's passed since people may have been at risk of contracting that disease a big driver in that so obviously we're talking like in 1980 that's you know like over 40 years ago now and 96 we're sort of coming up to 30 years yeah. i guess yeah, well i think so because the passage of time has allowed more evidence to accumulate that this is safe i didn't realize that um mad cow had a no. did you say a 30 year incubation period wow it can do yeah yeah but the prion disease which is an unusual disease caused by the prion protein and incubation periods are very very long. I had no idea about that. I actually know very little about mad cow disease. Um, I think it was um, mostly before me. Uh, so, <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I don't know too much about it, but yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Mm. So, but anyway, it's, it's a good news story now and, and we're hoping that, um, you, know, uh, you know, at least initially there's been a, a great deal of interest from people from, from that cohort coming in and we hope that continues because it's, uh, it's a great boost to the blood supply. Mm. Do, do you have any sort of estimates on how much you think the blood supply might be increased by because of that? Well, we, we think there's probably between eighteen and 20,000 potential donors who could come in. Yeah, okay. Maybe more. Yes. It's, it's, it's a bit hard to say, you know, because some of them are now quite old people from that cohort, so they may have other conditions that would prote- prevent them from donating. Because you know, people have to be basically healthy to donate if they've got some medical problems we can accept them, but donation itself isn't completely without risk, so people have to be healthy and well. Are there any um, uh, other policies mm. maybe similar to this Mad Cow one um, that you think should also be changed? I guess, like, one in my mind I'm thinking of is, like, tattoos. So I know that there's a there's some um, policy around having tattoos yeah. and not being able to give blood. We've, we've decreased the... Um, the period after a tattoo now for people, um, if they have a tattoo in a, a registered um, facility, then the, the uh, deferral period is Oh, okay. Short, I think yeah. That, yeah, interesting. It might be a month. No. I, I don't <laughs> quite remember. It could be a month, but it, it yeah. used to be three months and then we've decreased mm, that. That's really interesting because like, I've had a, a few and, friends just say that they can't give blood at all because they have tattoos. Yeah. Oh, no, that's not true. They, they certainly can, so well. encourage them to come down. Um, uh, there is a period, but it's not very long, so they can, they can certainly come in. Because the, the risks are, from a tattoo, very low, but you could potentially um, pick up hepatitis C from a tattoo. And there's a period where the blood, the tests that we do on, on people are negative but people still may have the disease called the window period, and, and that's the reason for those, that that deferral period. So we stop people donating whilst they may be infected, but we can't pick it up with the tests that we do on every donation. So it's a it's a window period issue. Mm. Our testing is yeah. very sophisticated and very sensitive, but there, for all the diseases we test for, there is this very short period that people may be positive and we might not pick them up. 
And even though they might only have a, a small amount of virus in their blood, uh, if, if you gave a whole bag of that blood to somebody, they, they would get a reasonable dose of the disease. And not only that, a lot of people who, who receive blood are immunocompromised and unwell anyway, so they don't necessarily have the means of fighting off a, a disease if it was introduced to them. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, so we do have a lot of deferrals that we're trying to work on, you know, some are lifestyle-related deferrals. I mean, the common ones that are discussed are the multiple sex deferral, and, uh, and we're working very hard to try and you know, relax some of those deferrals as testing improves and we develop, um, develop new strategies to try and allow everybody to donate. I mean, we'd like to be obviously as inclusive as possible and, 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 uh, and as long as it's safe from a donor's perspective and it's safe from a recipient's perspective, we're, we're very keen to have And I guess people for, for people who are mm-hmm. um, uh, gay of, of male to male sex and all that kind of stuff, yeah. um, the I guess the reason why that policy is there is because of the increased risk of things like HIV and, and those diseases, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So at the moment we have a three-month deferral same as tattoos. For male to male sex. It's not, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's slightly longer than tattooed for but three months. It used to be 12 months up until last year. We managed to reduce it to three months. And again, it's because of the window period for testing for HIV. So, you know, that's a precautionary three months that if, if you know, the test will definitely be positive by the time three months has passed if, if you happen to be unlucky enough to have HIV and, and then we can make sure the blood supply is safe. But there, there are some other alternatives we're looking at with regard to male-to-male sex and one is what we will call a plasma pathway where people can donate plasma potentially without any um, oh, okay. deferral period because the plasma goes to CSL and CSL bearing um, there's, there's several aspects to the preparation of the products that remove any, any risk of, of viral transmission. So, so there's, there's some things coming in, in the near future um, which will hopefully allow more people to donate. Um, hmm. Yeah, okay. There's a, there's a lot of uh, things to think about there. Um, now, it seems like a perennial issue with, with blood banks that there's not enough blood being donated. And is that... The case, and and if so, yeah. um, is that the main challenge you guys face, or are there other things as well? Certainly, that's a challenge. I mean, it, you know, the, the figures quoted are that three um, percent of people donate, but thirty percent of people will need blood or blood products at some stage in their life. So that that is an equation we'd like to to change. Um, you know, the winter period and COVID, in particular, you know, decrease the chance that someone's well enough to come and donate and, you know, lockdowns and things keep people out of um, circulation and they don't necessarily want to go into the city and wear a mask and do all those things. So, so yeah, I mean, sufficiency is, is an issue. Um, we have a very dedicated um, donor panel and people joining all the time. So, you know, we hope that we can maintain, maintain that. But, uh, yeah, I think... Um, 
any, anything anyone can do to encourage people to come and donate is is, is great. So uh, hopefully people listening to this podcast eventually yeah, will, look, will I'm, I'm come just, down I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm like, and, I, need and, to, I need to rebook that. I haven't done it in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Sometimes it's just a reminder, isn't it, to come, to come down. Um, yeah. Just out of interest, how, how often can people safely donate? Usually, yeah. Well, for whole blood, you can donate once every three months, but for plasma and platelets, you can donate every couple of weeks if, if you'd like. Mm. So you can donate much more frequently for plasma, particularly because we can give you all your red cells back at the same time. And that's part of the challenge is the plasma challenge because the the, the products that CSL bearing make from our plasma. Um, in particular, one called intravenous immunoglobulin, which is used for a whole range of conditions. The use of those products is going up quite substantially year on year. And so the, the use of the product goes up and we need, therefore, to provide more plasma for CSL to, to make that product. And for example, IVIG, three donations of plasma makes one dose of IVIG. So... You know, for every three donations we get, we only can provide one one IVIG dose, and um, you know that that's in the foreseeable future. Probably demand for IVIG is going to continue to to grow, and so we need to continue to grow the amount of plasma that we uh, we provide, which 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 we are certainly working hard on. And you know, we, mm. we now more than fifty percent of our donations are, are plasma donations, plasma for research. So, donations. is there is there is it better mm. to is it better to donate plasma rather than whole blood? Um, it depends a bit on your blood group, uh, and and also donating plasma takes a bit more time, and and you need nice big <laughs> juicy veins for the apheresis machine so so some people are more suited to plasma donation um you know if you if you're an o negative for example we would prefer you donated whole blood because that's a useful much you know it's a it's a essential um group and to that, have that's the one that available. um but, can donate to anyone yeah yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so so we like to have some of that a, a lot, you know. And there, there's there's demand for that. Hospitals like to to maintain stocks of O negative as well for situations that they have to deal with. So so yeah, so so there's not one better or or worse, but you know, often donors will be asked to move from one to the other if if the situation's required. You know, for example, you might turn up to donate plasma one day, and your blood group is is running a little bit low in, you know stock and, and people will say, well, can you donate uh, whole blood today because we need some of that. So some of our donors are very flexible and will, you know, move from one type of donation to another. Mm. And platelets is the other the other donation type, which is a little bit like plasma. Only males can, oh, can donate platelets. Um, that's because of this funny condition called TRALI, which is transfusion-related acute lung injury, which occurs due to antibodies and um, females are more likely to have those antibodies due to previous pregnancies. So as a safety measure, we, we just use male platelets. There you go. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I had no idea that there was differences. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is interesting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's some real population-level health. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, 
It'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you, and now back to the show. I thought it might be a good opportunity, since since I've got you on the line, um, to have a chat about the other hat that you wear, um, which is is the chair of the Department of Health Human Research Ethics Committee. Peter, if you'd be happy to talk about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because there'll be a lot of people listening who have had interactions with your committee, and right. um, you know we we use a lot of uh, linked administrative data via yeah. the data linkage branch, um, yeah. and obviously we interact with the hospitals as well, and sometimes directly deal with them. Um, but a lot of it goes through your HREC. And mm. uh, so, yeah, I was wondering if you could give us uh, first of all, how long have you been chair of the HREC? Um, it's nearly six years, actually. It's my sixth my yeah. sixth year there mm-hmm. okay and um what's do you just want to give us a brief out, outline of what the atrix purpose is yeah well it's it's a specialized human research ethics committee the department of health ethics committee and its main role is to um review projects that are asking for the use of the big wa health data sets of which there are many, including, for example, the emergency department data set and the midwife's data set, the cancer registry, those sort of big data sets. And for researchers to gain access to those, one of the um, one of the hoops that needs to be jumped through is to get HREC ap- approval, as well as governance approval and data data um, steward approval. Data steward approval. So, so that's. Mm-hmm. Probably the main part of the HREC um, considerations. The second one is anything where there's a new data linkage being asked for. Um, so you know the data linkage branch at um, WA Health is uh, very well regarded around the country, and many many research projects um, would like um, data linkage between different data sets, either from within the Department of Health or from outside for example, transport or education or other other areas would like to link up with, with data sets within the department. So the HREC will look at those applications. And then um, I suppose the other the other thing is if there's any um, research that involves WA Health staff or uh, involves WA Health staff or in some cases um, re- and overall, um, research ethics approval will come will come through the, through us. So. Mm. But and, the main thing is it's a specialised HREC. It's not a it's not a typical HREC, which will look at say clinical trials and um, you know drug trials, those mm-hmm. sort of things. We don't we don't really do that. Um, yeah. So it's just for the the sort of health department. Yeah. Uh, records mm-hmm. basically. Um, and in your role as chair, what are your responsibilities? Well, I, I, I guess, I mean, the, well, firstly, the committee is, is constituted as per the NH and MRC requirements, so it means that there's representation from uh, a large array of different voices. There's researchers, there's lay people, there's um, a pastoral care member, there's someone from the department themselves, so there's, there's a range of voices. So I suppose the chair's key role is to um, ensure that the national statement which the NH and MRC have put out as 
the standard for ethical review is adhered to and that the voices of all the people around the table who um, have have an input into that into the research project are heard and that the a consensus view about approving the project or asking for additional information regarding the project or rejecting the project for that matter is 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 considered i mean i, I we do try and make it um a researcher friendly committee because researchers have to go through a lot of um a lot of work to get to get ethics approval and often there's more than one ethics committee they need approval from to get one project across the line and, and some of our projects are either multinational or multi-state projects and they have you know four or five different ethics approvals to to navigate plus governance in each of their sites um, so we do try and, and make ourselves as user-friendly as possible but yeah, ensuring that the national statement is adhered to and that the participants in the ethics study, and particularly in our case, the data of those part- participants is um, protected and, and safe and is being used in accordance with what the, the national statement um, allows. Mm. And what, what are sort of the, I guess, the most common issues you come across, for, you know, when you receive a, an application for ethics approval? Uh, what are sort of the, yeah I guess the common things that that might cause concern? Yeah, uh, I I suppose our, the main thing that we provide is waiver of consent, which which is meaning that we will allow the data of somebody to be used for research purposes, even though that data was collected for some other purpose, and so the researchers really need to address why a waiver of consent is required for their research. And, uh, you know, that that's probably the biggest issue that we deal with because, um, you know, to, to be able to waive consent is a major thing. I mean, your data is often personal health information um, that you've provided to someone who's treated you, for example, in an emergency department or in a hospital, and um, then a researcher wants to utilise that data for a research project and... You know, we have to know that it's being safely used, that it's, for example, de-identified, it's stored safely, it's transferred safely and all those things. But in addition, that trying to obtain consent would be it not not feasible or or cause problems for the, the person who owns it's the It's really interesting you've brought that up. So, waiver of consent, I think, is the big issue. Yeah, so, big so issue. Uh, mm. I'm, I don't think uh, you know, Peter, but the project that I'm currently working on has that waiver of consent um and it's it's always the first thing that's brought up when we introduce this project to anyone so essentially what we're doing is collecting Mm. blood samples as part of clinical guidelines um in patients that come into eds um with acute toxicity um and we don't need Mm. to get patient consent and it's it's always the first question it's like oh how do you ask that patient for you to use that data it's like you know, they, most of the yeah. time they're unconscious, so <laughs> we can't do it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of cases the uh, the people involved in some of these research studies could either be dead or very yeah. unwell and often the numbers are so huge that trying to obtain consent would be very difficult or it might, you know, if they've had a significant event like a miscarriage or something, trying to obtain consent might cause um, discomfort or mm. stress or whatever to the, to the participant. So there's yeah. way up the the benefits of 
of not obtaining consent and, and waiving consent. And those, yeah. I suppose the and other they, ones that we come up against, um, conflict of interest is a common thing where the researcher may have a, um, a conflict of interest and, you know, as long as it's declared in, in, the, um, in the application, that's, that's something we can consider. But sometimes, you know, people are concerned there's a conflict of interest that hasn't been declared, so we tend to go back to the research. What would be, what would be a conflict of interest mm-hmm. for that? It's like if their friends are in it or something? Or... Um, <laughs> well, that could be. Or, or <laughs> for example, if... It, um, well, a lot of these are around medical treatments oh, okay. and so on. So it may be that, that you may you may actually yep. own a patent or something around that, and there may be an economic benefit if you got this research project up and running. Or so there's hmm. there's those there's economic um, conflicts of interest, conflicts of interest around if you're treating a particular patient in a particular way, uh, you know, you may be more inclined not to offer other alternatives if if you want them to be involved in the project. So that could be a conflict of interest. But there's, there's mm. other types of conflict of interest. So they're, they're sort of teased yeah. out by the committee. And I, I guess the third main thing is the information security side of things. And one of the members of the committee is an information security specialist. So that's part of the makeup of the committee and he... In this case, so he, he ensures that everything in the data data management plan stacks up, and that you know the the data is going to be safe, um, safely secured and transferred, and only people who have um, legitimate access can access the data. Mm-hmm. That it's destroyed appropriately at the end of the of the project. Mm. Now, occasionally, very occasionally, um, people researchers will get approval for a project under certain terms that a committee will agree to. Uh, and by accident or uh, other, some other circumstance, they may have an incident that happens that takes their project outside of what's been approved. Hmm. Does that then get referred back to the HREC or does it go to some other body? Um, well, if it's a breach which I think is what you're describing, it'll come back to yeah. the HREC and then it'll be assessed as to whether it's significant or not. And if it's significant, uh, a, a little committee from within the health department will How many breaches it, are there? Which includes me. Oh, good. It's <laughs> not very many, not very many. I mean, breaches can be very rare. I mean, I think I've probably had oh, about okay. three in okay. my time well, that's in good. six years. And two of them at least have been very minor. For example, someone's... Um, provided um, an additional variable in the data set that they weren't really entitled to get. So, you know, it's not really significant. It's not going to cause grief. I mean, the ones that are significant, if if sort of data's been, um, you know, lost somewhere or used in a way that may expose some of the the participants that that shouldn't be. Well, no, we very rarely see a breach. And I think most of the breaches have been actually reported by the researcher themselves who's noted that, you know, we've got this. I'm not surprised. I feel like because, like, as researchers, you'd put so much effort into all the ethics and the governments and setting up these projects. It's it's like a very protective thing. Um, And as soon as, like, you would breach, if you did breach ethics, there'd be, like, this immense guilt. Like, oh, my God, I have to report this. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the the researchers 
are obliged also to put in an annual report to us in a project um, telling us where they're up to and how the data's being used and that there hasn't been any breaches. So, that you know, they're reminded to, to let us know about anything that's happening in the project. And additionally, at the end of the project, they have to sort of provide a final report. And if they do want to change things, they can change things legitimately by sending an amendment through and then the committee or more likely if it's a minor amendment, just me will say, well, that's, that's okay, we'll amend your, your project and allow whatever it is, you know, maybe it's an additional member of the project team or maybe it's uh, they want to increase the scope and, and look at some other aspect that they've noticed they could legitimately do. But uh, So there's, there's different ways of going about it. But the breach thing is, is, is rare and I think in our environment, I mean, things are, are very tightly managed with the governance structures within the Department of Health and the hospitals and, and so on as well. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's less likely. Mm-hmm. And do, there, there is the think... occasional complaint <laughs> from participants who've been contacted and they don't know why they've been contacted, uh-huh. I guess. that that's It's very rare. I mean, most people are quite receptive to being part of a study, so people are looking to consent people. So these are studies where consent is occurring, not waiver of consent. Often mm-hmm. people use, are entitled to use with HREC approval the electoral role to, um, to, to get participants. Um, some, some people... <laughs> So do you just get random phone calls? Mm-hmm. As long as do you just get random phone calls from pardon? general public? Like, why am I? Uh, well, not not me. We do have a. Luckily, we have a very good structure within the department that that manages those those things. I mean, I don't work for the health department at all. I'm, this is an arm's length position, which is another benefit of the the WA. HREC in that the chair is not a member of the the WA Department of Health, so it's arm's length. And you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of. Um, projects that involve WA Health in some way or another. So the fact that I'm arm's length means that we can adjudicate um, you know, without prejudice, I guess. Mm. Mm. Oh, really interesting. Um, and ha- is that, ter- like, are you appointed um, to a particular term or is yes, it just it's ongoing? Yes, it's a three-year three term. Okay. So I'm on my second term at the moment. Yeah, and do you expect to continue, or do you not? Are you not sure? Or? Um, well, I think I'll, I've been asked to probably continue for another year because there's a slight restructure in the wings for um, for ethics committees around the town. So they, they have uh, it's a bit grey as to exactly what's happening, but I'll probably do another year. Mm. Yeah, that's. I'm sure. I'm sure it's been an interesting experience, and you probably yeah, hear it's, it's, it's all sorts of things. Really interesting, and uh, I mean, I really enjoy enjoy it actually. And the the vantage points of, for example, the lay people who are on the committee, and the researchers themselves are on the committee, the pastoral care person. I mean, it, it's um, it's kind of lively and interesting, and um, and very well motivated. So, yeah, I think it's. Hmm. What are the sorts of concerns that lay people, um, like you know, kind of non-health people, might have around some of these projects? Um, well, I guess I mean there is a general concern from people about using data and making sure it's used appropriately and that it can't be used for other purposes. And so I think that's a legitimate 
legitimate concern and that's, you know, one of our major concerns is to make sure that doesn't happen. So it's, I suppose that's probably the main, the main issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in projects where consent's obtained, uh, I think being able to understand the consent process and what you're consenting for is an issue and, and often, you know, the way the consent form's worded is important so that people really understand what they're getting themselves in for and what they've, what they've agreed to. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's occasional concerns about the complexity of the form or, you know, the, the onus that's being placed on people to, you know, to report X, Y or Z so frequently or, you know, how much of an impact it's going to have on them to do all that. So, yeah. I, I can give you a a real life example of yeah. that um the project that i'm doing my phd on um was a project that i was involved in recruiting participants uh, from the prison and so we were approaching people in inside the prison before they were due to get released right. to, to interview them and whatnot and of course there are a lot of people in prison who haven't completed a high level of education and so we if we were to just put a you know, written consent form in front of them and then tell them to read it and then see if they agree. Mm. That could be an issue, particularly as there's a lot of people in there from the remote areas where English might be their second or third language. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's some people from overseas as well. So, yeah, we had to sort of go through that process and have a protocol in place that would have come before your committee um, and as, along with the, the checklist of uh, terms that we were getting people to consent to. Um, but yeah, I know that there was there was a bit of back and forth to, to get that right. You know, whilst we were doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I think I mean, consent is one of the interesting facets of the whole process. And you know, some of these projects run for a long, long period, as you probably, probably know. They can go for years and years. Some of them are registries, so they're going to be a life. You know, they've got a life of their own, really. And you know, there's a, there is a question of whether consent elapses after a certain period of time, and how people could. Um, manage that aspect of consent you know to, you should be able to withdraw consent when you when you want to and you know um, reconsent if if things have changed in the project or you know, and there's various new strategies that are being developed to try and manage that um, you know, dynamic consent through sort of software systems that that um, ask participants to reconsent in certain you know, certain periods and Mm-hmm. advise them if what's happened in the project and where the project's going and you know ask them if they would like to continue or, or not but they're, yeah. they're more or less in their infancy those types of consenting processes but um, yeah certainly i mean i, I i'm really um, and as a committee we're really focused on making sure either waiver of consent or consent is is done well because it's um, it's somebody else's somebody else's data and, and health information and, and life that researchers are, are interested in looking at and, and yep. participants need to know about. I suppose the other thing in, in the um, applications, and maybe you had it in yours, I'm not sure, Craig, is involvement from the, the group of people you're looking at, you know, sort of um, the consumer input into the study at an early phase and, and you know, mm-hmm. That, that often is a very powerful persuader of the ethics committee that, you know, the researchers have considered things from the participants' perspective and the participants have provided input into the, say, the participation information sheet and how the study's going to run and, you know, so forth. Yeah. 
No, it's, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what the process was for my project because I joined the project a bit later. Uh, it was sort of established by the time I came on board. But I know these days, having trying to set up new prison projects in particular or projects involving mm-hmm. people who've had prison contact, um, first of all, you, you wouldn't do anything that wasn't going through the WAHEC approval process, yes. the Aboriginal Ethics mm-hmm. Committee. Um, and you probably wouldn't do something that wasn't at least co-designed by Aboriginal people as well, considering how overrepresented they are in, in prisons. Um, and yeah, obviously other consumers or, you know, people who've, you know, got lived experience of being in prison would, would certainly, you know, have to be involved in that as well. Yeah. 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 Um, well, we've come up, we've it's come, valuable yeah. for research to have that input at the start. You, you, the outcome is so much more beneficial when... Because it's so much more personal that at that point. It's like you're really yeah. targeting the group that yeah. you're trying to help. It's, yeah. Makes total sense. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's not just an academic exercise. It's actually pr- pr- producing something useful that can be, you know, beneficial to the people that you're trying to help, yeah. As you mentioned, WAHEC, our committee will often suggest WAHEC review if, if you know, there's a, a component that involves Aboriginal people in, in, the, in the study mm. or it hasn't really been clearly identified as to how you know, that aspect of the study would be, would be managed. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's a, it's an interesting area and and evolving. Um, mm. You know, obviously, I think um, so. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you actually. Um, speaking of innovation and and the way things evolve and develop, we, we had some previous guests on the podcast who are experts in visual contracts, and I believe they've been working in the space of visual consent forms, um, possibly with the rain study even. But they're from the one of them is based at the UWA Law School, and she's an expert in um, visual contracts. And they've got a company called Comic Book Contracting. Her, her name is Professor Camilla Anderson, uh, and, her, and her husband Peter um, Peter Corner is the the other partner in the in the business. And I'm wondering if you've had any of those come across your um, no. HREC desk. No, no, I've heard vaguely about that somewhere. But I can't remember from where, but no, we haven't seen any of those. No. Okay. No, but it does yeah. seem useful yeah it's an interesting concept and i think maybe would remove some of the barriers to people understanding what they're consenting to in in a lot of cases yeah yeah excellent all right well um before we head off i was was just going to ask uh what is next for you do you have any plans you know in the future um (laughs) <laughs> I've got lots of lots of plans, but um, <laughs> I, I guess work-wise, I'm, I'm very happy working at Lifeblood, and there's lots of interesting challenges there. So I'll, I'll mm. obviously getting towards the latter part of my career. So I think I'll be um, finish finishing my career with Lifeblood, and hopefully providing some input where required on on all these sort of matters that we've talked about. And I'll stay with the Hatrick for another year if they would like me to, which I think is, is on mm-hmm. the cards. Um, yeah, mm. that'll be the, the main things. I'm, I'm keen to um, continue our research collaboratives with UWA. Um, that's that's an enjoyable aspect of, of my work. I'm also, yeah. uh, I do um, a few other bits and pieces with UWA, mentorship of medical students and um, and some examining and things, and I like I like doing that. So mm-hmm. I'll continue with those, those parts. And non-work-wise? Well. Yeah, oh, excellent. 
Not work wise. Well, thankfully, we're going to go Amazing. skiing again in February after yeah, many years nice. of not being able to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where's your preferred? I've got a little grandson now, too, which is great. So, non work wise, um, family yeah, time. Yeah. Nice family, family things. Yeah. Where's your, where's your preferred skiing destination? Uh, well, well, actually, um, Italy, really, but we're going to Whistler on this occasion. <laughs> In Canada, hey? Yeah. 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 So. Uh, excellent. Oh, that'll be nice. It'll be cold and snowy, yeah, hopefully. Mm. Yeah. Oh, excellent. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time today, Peter. It's been fascinating talking to you about all the, the different hats that you wear and... Uh, it's serious and important. Yeah, I was very surprised to get a get a get the email, but it's been nice <laughs> nice chatting. Up. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's excellent. Mm. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. All right, see you later. And that was our conversation with Dr. Peter Bentley. What do you think, Courtney? Now, I I reckon. I like I, I know his name. I didn't realize I knew his name, but I'm pretty sure um, I or like me or my family at a very young age have actually been to his GP. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty interesting. It's like it, for the whole conversation, I'm like, I swear I've seen this name before, um, but because of of where his practice was, I'm I'm pretty sure it was because I, I went to his practice at some point. Did, did you guys live up in the northern suburbs, like Woodvale or Kingsley or somewhere? Um, no, but I I just I have this vague memory. So I, I'm more inner city, but um, okay. I've definitely like. There's, there's vibes, and I know the name, and I'm pretty sure it's because of that. Okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's from the ethics part. Yeah. Well, they always say Perth's a small world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a big country town, and, yeah, that wouldn't it wouldn't be shocking if that was the case. <laughs> and I reckon some of our listeners have probably had him as a GP as well. <laughs> yeah, it could well be. <laughs> yeah, that was a really fascinating chat. Um, I definitely learned a lot that a lot of things I had no idea about, um, you know, particularly around blood donations and the types of donations you can make. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that they could skim off your plasma and give you back your red blood cells. Like, yeah, super interesting. I didn't know about like the the um, the milk banks and things like that. I thought that mm. was really interesting. Um, you know, I don't know too much about uh, the disease that. Uh, so he was saying they collect milk from um, breastfeeding mothers um, to give to newborns uh, because otherwise they get like some form of necrosis, I think. Um, I had no idea about that. So I guess that's where they actually need the the mother's milk instead of uh, bottle fed um, or like powders or things like that. Yeah, really interesting. I had no idea. I I didn't really... I wasn't across that. I had heard of fecal transplants before, which is so obviously the fecal microbiome bank that I'm they've got. I'm pretty sure they had like a episode of, you know, those forensic shows. I can't even think of a name. They're just they're, they're well, fiction. CSI. Foren- yeah, yeah, those kinds yeah. of things. CSI. I'm pretty sure there was an episode at some point where. Um, someone ended up like dying and it was because they were drinking their own poop because of fecal transplant um, information or misinformation. Um, So that was my first experience of like learning about that. Um, So it's really interesting to see how it's actually applied and what it is actually good for. Yep. 
Um, and it, it sounds like a, an emerging area of medicine that they still don't have an overly large amount of information about, but what they do have seems the information suggests that people are, uh, you know, getting treated effectively, you know, who have this problem that, that Peter was talking about. Um, yep. Yeah, fa- fascinating stuff, and and I'm really like uh, like I, it came up in the conversation there. I, I've not been able to ever give blood, and I haven't had that many blood tests, you know, from you know from a medical point of view in my life. I, I have had some, but I'm really squeamish, <laughs> and um, <laughs> the time I have had blood taken, you know, the times I have, I've sort of had to lie down and uh, <laughs> yeah, g- gather my wits <laughs> for a few minutes, um, yeah. which I you know. Re- I uh, tell the phlebotomist about ahead of time um, because I know it's going to happen. Uh, I suspect if I if I did a medicine degree um, that I would grow out of that because I gather that a lot of people have that reaction at first, but by the time they've graduated, they, blood doesn't bother <laughs> them anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, the whole concept of giving blood, and it sounds like you have given blood before. Um, uh, only a couple of times. I, okay. I, I, I am someone who, who can and able and continuously forgets <laughs> yeah okay yeah yeah no i've i mean I've, i'm pretty sure my my brother has given blood and we've got a, a friend that gives blood regularly as well um but yeah the whole concept's a bit foreign to me because i've never mm-hmm. been able to do it in this country and yeah i suspect that i'll be putting pressure on myself to change that um yeah, particularly after talking to peter there uh, yeah it does uh, it does make you feel the need to do that more often <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah yeah interesting yeah no, we've had we've had politicians blowing their trumpets getting you know covid vaccines and big photo opportunities i know i've just had my vaccine and it's, i wonder if we're going to start seeing them you know doing the same thing when they give blood <laughs> yeah i mean that'd be good because it increased yeah. awareness and um always need more more people to give blood and I, I guess something we didn't talk about is like the shelf life of um, mm. uh, blood donations which is pretty short okay uh, which is why they continually need donations so yeah it's, it's something well worthwhile getting into yeah interesting uh, statistics there three percent of people donate and 30 percent of people at some point in their life need blood so so interesting yeah. Uh, so yeah, obviously that there's always going to be a a supply issue, I guess, a shortfall. Mm. But um, it sounds like they're doing excellent work uh, managing, you know, what they do have and ensuring that it gets into the right hands. So mm. yeah. Uh, do do yeah. you know? Do you know what um, blood type you are? I actually don't, which is probably a bit one negligent. Of the, the special O positives. Yeah, was it O positive or O negative? Oh, uh, O negative. Sorry, yeah. O yeah, that's negative. okay. See, I don't no, know I my own. I'm O positive. <laughs> I don't know my own blood type, but from that conversation, I remembered him saying O negative. <laughs> yes, yes, so, yeah. O negative yeah. is like the universal donor, um, mm-hmm. but can only receive O negative. Yep. Okay. All right. I'll uh, I'll do some scouting and see what blood type I am. Um, next, next podcast. Yeah, it's so my homework. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, so uh, we've we've got some uh, more interesting guests coming up as well after this one, which is mm-hmm. great. Uh, we're looking forward to bringing everyone those episodes. Um, yeah, if people want to get in touch with us, Courtney, how do they do it? You can tweet us at health means what, or you can email us meaningofhealth at outlook.com. Please 
chat to us. We would love to know uh, what you find interesting in our podcast, what you absolutely hate about us, whatever you want to tell us, let us know. Uh, And, yeah, we would love to talk to our audience uh, and whoever listens just so we can get some perspectives. It would be really cool. (laughs) And people can also find us on Facebook. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's good. You know, it took me like a good handful of episodes to get my hand handle across like Twitter and email and remembering yep. that. And now you're asking me to remember Facebook as well. Exactly. Like, oh boy. Outrageous. It's going to be a tough time. I know. Hard taskmaster <laughs> over here. That's right. Um, but yeah, but by the looks of it, um, it looks like we've had a few people go ahead and like the Facebook page, um, which is great. <laughs> so exciting. So, yeah. So hoping to connect with people any way we can. And, Absolutely. And just, you know, interact and get feedback and uh, hopefully that leads to us putting on a, a greater range of guests, you know, from different areas. Yeah. Different backgrounds. Yeah. Be fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for you very much for that chat today. It yeah, was excellent. Um, thanks Dude. once again to, to Dr. Peter Bentley. And um, yeah, we will look forward to being back with you again soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.